Good morning and welcome. Thanks for being here. Welcome especially to Ashton and Edwin. It's great to have you guys officially leading for the first time uh, this morning. We're really excited to have you as part of the Trinity family and look forward to uh, how he grows us all together. Um, But welcome to everybody as we prepare to open God's word. Uh, My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity and it's going to be my privilege this morning to take us a little bit further through our study of the gospel of Matthew. So here at Trinity, we love the Bible. We believe it's how God speaks to us. It's how he lets us know who he is. It's how he shows us who we really are and how we need to relate to him. And so because we believe the Bible speaks so powerfully and clearly, we want to study it intentionally and systematically. And so on Sunday mornings, we most often open up a book and just start working through. And right now we're in the middle of a long study through the gospel of Matthew, a biography, a spiritual biography of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And right now that has us in Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. So if you have a copy of the Bible, I'd invite you to take it out. Turn with me to Matthew 13. We're going to look at verses 31 through 35 this morning. Uh, (coughs) Excuse me, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, there should be one on the seat back uh, in front of you. And a listening guide, if you didn't get a copy of a listening guide on your way in, uh, it's a little piece of paper, has space to take notes, to to write down any any notes, help you follow along with the text. Uh, If you didn't get one on your way in and you would like one, just slip off your hand and Nick will make sure that you get one from the back. Uh, Matthew 13, verses 31 through 35. We're talking this morning about mustard, yeast, an imperceptible transformation. And you may be thinking, DJ's finally lost his mind. It doesn't make any sense at all. But it will eventually. I promise you, it will eventually make sense. As we're setting the table, as you're getting to Matthew 13, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever watched a glacier move? It's not terribly exciting if you've never seen it. In fact, you could be forgiven for sitting here and thinking this morning, wait, glaciers move? Like I thought they just sat there on the side of a mountain. Well... Glaciers move. And as evidence, we're going to watch a little video clip. So Nick, go ahead and roll that video and let's, uh, let's take a look at this together. Now you could sit there by that glacier for weeks on end watching it and never even notice that anything was moving at all, right? You would have to stop and use the time lapse, come back after, after weeks, after months, after years to be able to see even the slightest hint that it's on the move. And yet, it has the power to carve rock, to carve through mountains. I got another question for you this morning. You ever seen the output of an Enigma machine? And maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, I don't even know what an Enigma machine is. Well, an Enigma machine was a code machine that was used by the Germans during World War II to send, incur- to send encoded messages from headquarters out to troops on the front lines, especially to their submarine fleet. Uh, And so when we look at the output of an Enigma machine, it doesn't really look like anything at all. Really, go ahead and put this next image up there. That is what you might get as a message from an Enigma machine. Anybody know what that says? We'll take guesses. I'll give you, I don't know, a Chick-fil-A gift card if you can get it right on the first try. (laughs) There's no way you know what, it looks like gibberish, right? It looks like it means nothing at all. But if you decode it through the Enigma machine, here is what you actually see. It's a rather important message about someone new being put in command. Important stuff that soldiers on the front line need to know who's in command, who's giving orders, what they should listen to, what they should do. What looks at first glance to be complete gibberish actually is not only a clear message, it's vitally important. It has power to change the world, to change the course of a war. Now, what do these two examples show us? They show us that appearances can be deceiving. 
that things aren't always what they appear at first glance. In both cases, it looks like absolutely nothing meaningful is going on whatsoever. But in both cases, what is going on is not only meaningful, but it's powerful. It's important. And as we look at our text this morning, we're going to see that the kingdom of God works in much the same way. This is how God operates. It's easy to look at God's work in the world. It's easy to look at God's work in the life of a church. It's easy to look at God's work in your own life and sometimes conclude that nothing is happening at all. It appears we're stuck, we're stagnant, we're motionless, we're wasting our time. But that's not the reality. After all, Jesus told us this is exactly what it was going to look like. This is exactly how things were going to go. And once we grasp that truth from our text this morning, once we grasp it and we believe it, it can change the way that we look and think about everything from your own spiritual growth to the fate of the universe. So let's read together Jesus' words in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 31. It says, he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants, and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. That's God's word for us this morning. Join with me. Let's pray and we'll jump in and study it together. Our great God who plans and orders history who reveals mysteries. We ask that as we come to your word this morning, as we study it, that what we know not, you will teach us. What we have not, you will give us. And Father, what we are not, you will make us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's set the table. Let's set the context. Remind ourselves where we are. We are in the middle of an extended series of parables here in chapter 13. It can be tough maybe to follow because we've jumped around a lot because a lot of these parables, Jesus will give the parable and then he'll go on and we'll get the story from Matthew that other stuff keeps happening and then later on Jesus comes back and explains the parable to his disciples. And so we've kind of tried to to lump the explanations together with the parables and that means we're bouncing through chapter 13 kind of oddly. In fact, last week when we looked at the parable of the weeds and the wheat, we did what's right before this text and what's right after this text. So we're completing the sandwich this morning and coming back to look at verses 31 through 35. And we're seeing more parables, right? We see two parables this morning. These parables are a little different than what we've seen so far because they're not so much extended stories like the parable of the sower or the parable of the weeds and the wheat as much as they are like snapshots. They're word pictures. They're just meant to strike images in our mind to help us to understand spiritual truth. These are vibrant pictures that communicate big things. So keep that in mind as we study these two snapshots together. The first parable is about mustard. Now, 
as with most of Jesus' parables, its imagery would have been readily apparent to all the people who heard it in the original day. Most of Jesus' parables revolve around agriculture. Why? Because they were an agricultural society. The people who gathered to hear Jesus preach and teach would have been farmers or laborers on farms. So they would have understood these pictures of plants, of seeds, of sowers, of weeds, of wheat. And so when they would have heard this right away, they wouldn't really have had to do any work to understand at least the picture that Jesus is painting for them. Now, for us today, when I say mustard, probably all that you can get in your brain is the yellow stuff that comes on hot dogs, right? That's about all we do with mustard. It's a condiment. They would have heard mustard and seen seed, plant, tree. And so as we look at this, We need to to think about the details so that we can make sure we get the point that Jesus is making. So he talks about a mustard seed in verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds. So he says that this is the smallest of all seeds. Now, I could have brought a mustard seed with me this morning, but I was pretty sure I'd lose it before we got here. But suffice it to say, a mustard seed is about the size of the tip of this pen little round ball about the size of the tip of this pen. So very, very small. Now, some people get all bent out of shape when they're like, but mustard seed isn't really the smallest of all seeds. There are actually some seeds that are smaller. And we know that, right? Jesus is not trying to be a biologist here. He's saying this is the smallest of any seed that a Palestinian farmer would have commonly planted, right? So there are smaller seeds, but none that these people would have known, none that these people would have commonly put in their fields. Jesus is painting a picture for them. He's not trying to make an absolute statement about the size of seeds of every plant in all the world. So kind of back up and understand what is it that Jesus is trying to do. He's speaking in parables. He's speaking in the common idiom of the people of his day. And what he's saying is mustard seeds are really, really small, right? They were proverbially small. So what does that mean? It means a mustard seed was a common image in the day for small things. When people talked about small things, they would talk about mustard seeds. Right? Later on, Jesus is going to say, if you have faith even like a mustard seed, right? Same imagery. If you have something really small. It's like today if we say, you know, somebody is quiet as a mouse. Are, are there quieter things than a mouse? Yeah, there are, but it's a proverbial statement. We all know immediately what someone means when they say quiet as a mouse. That's how mustard seed functioned in Jesus' day. And he says, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that God is building in the world, is like a grain of mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds. But when it grows, verse 32, it's larger than all the garden plants. And it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, we have to understand then, okay, if that's what the seed looks like, what does the mustard tree look like? And I've got an image, if we go ahead and put up here, of what a Palestinian mustard tree would look like. So there's lots of different varieties. Um, it's not so much a tree that, that, like, in the sense that we think of, it looks kind of more like a large bush. But keep in mind, in Palestine, there really isn't a whole lot of difference between large bush and small tree. Like, there's not a lot of trees over there. This is kind of what they would know in terms of the height of a tree. And this would have been the biggest thing in the garden, right? If a farmer is sowing seeds in his garden, you're not going to see a whole lot bigger than this. Mustard would usually jump together and form a thicket, and it could be up to 8 to 10 feet tall in this massive clump that could take over a garden. So Jesus is saying that what starts as the smallest little seed turns into the biggest plant 
in the garden. In fact, it gets so big, it becomes a tree and, and to the point where birds are able to come and shelter in its branches and build nests and live there. So the imagery is, is pretty clear. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is like something that starts really, really, really small and it gets really big and it, it dwarfs everything else all around it and it provides shelter to the creatures around it. So, so that's the imagery. That's the picture that's being painted for us. Now, before we dive too deep into the meaning of this parable, let's look at the next one as well, because they're thematically similar, right? They're meant to be echoes of one another and kind of build on each other. He tells us next that the kingdom of heaven is like yeast in verse 33. He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven or yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So he paints the imagery of a, of a woman baking bread. And she takes some yeast and she sprinkles it into the, the flour until all of it rises, until all of it is leavened. Incidentally, this is just kind of a sidebar, but it, it's interesting, commentators note, Jesus is, uses two illustrations for this, one that the men around him would have commonly understood and one that the women around him would have con con commonly understood. He's teaching in a way that hits a wide net that everybody can grasp and hold on to and get a picture of. But both images are telling us the same truth, right? Yeast is small. If you ever bake bread, you can get the little packets of yeast and they, they come in this tiny little pouch and you just dump them in and you put them in with the flour and they start to go to work and they cause it to rise. This woman hides it in three measures of flour and it stays there until it's leavened the whole batch. Now, again, we can grasp basically what he's saying here. We get a picture because we know how bread and yeast kind of work, right? But because we're a little divorced from the culture, we don't see the whole picture. There's some detail that we need to, to, to understand here to get the full impact. And the biggest detail is, so what does three measures of flour look like? Like if I say three measures of flour, you might have this image of getting your little measuring cup and scooping out three, and there you go. A measure is, the, the term in the Greek here uh, is, I just lost it in my notes. But... The measure that is referred to here, the word in the Greek, means about three gallons, right? It's about three gallons of flour. So I want you to imagine when we say three measures of flour, think milk jugs, right? Three measures would have been nine milk jugs full of flour that you dump all into one giant bowl together. So this is a, a, a substantial amount of flour. It's a lot. In fact, when you would have baked it into bread, it would have been enough to feed easily 100 people. And Jesus is saying, you put just a little bit of yeast into this giant vat of flour, and it's not going to stop until it's leavened the whole batch. It gets into everything. It doesn't stop until it finishes its work. So let's take these two pictures together and ask ourselves, from the two of them, what do we learn about the kingdom of God? And the big picture thing that we learn is this. Kingdom change is invisible, yet dramatic. Kingdom change is invisible and yet dramatic. What do we mean by that? Well, let's look at some smaller points and, and understand together. First off, what do these things teach us about the kingdom of heaven? It starts small. It starts small. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, the smallest seed that would have been in the minds of any of these farmers. It starts, it starts like a little bit of yeast that you dump into the massive vat of flour. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is small. Right? When you mix the yeast in with the flour, you can't even tell it's there. The mustard seed is so insignificant that I'm worried I would have lost it just trying to bring one with me this morning. These are small things. And the kingdom of God's the same way, right? 
It started not, think about history. Think about the things that you learn in history class as a kid. What gets remembered in history? Kings get remembered in history. Empires get remembered in history. People who invent amazing things get invented or get remembered in history. The wealthy, the powerful, the influential, they get remembered in history. But the kingdom of God started not with conquest, not with royal authority, but with a backwater carpenter turned itinerant preacher and his band of uneducated blue-collar followers. Hardly the kind of person that you would expect to become the most influential human being in history. I don't care if you're a Christian or not this morning. I don't really think you can dispute that fact, that assertion. Jesus Christ is the most influential human being who ever lived. The world has literally set its calendar by him. And so whether you think he was, he was some crazy lunatic to be dismissed, or whether you worship him as Lord and Savior, this guy became the most influential person in the history of the planet. Who would have picked him? A carpenter, a preacher, someone who history should have forgotten long, long ago. The kingdom of God starts small. The early days of the church were small. The early days of the church were insignificant by the standards of the world. They were hardly worthy of notice by the powerful, by the influential. The Apostle Paul hits on this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, when he tells people, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You weren't somebody when Jesus called you. He didn't pick you because you were the best and the brightest. And he thought, man, there is a ton of untapped potential in those people. You weren't wise by worldly standards. You weren't influential. You weren't noble. You weren't wealthy. You were mustard seed. You were a little bit of leaven. Nobody would have noticed. The kingdom of heaven starts out small. But secondly, the kingdom of heaven ends up big right? That's the contrast that we get as we look at these two parables together. The mustard seed becomes larger than any other plant in the garden, despite the fact that it started as the smallest seed. The yeast doesn't stop until it's leavened the entire batch of flour, regardless of the fact that this is a ton of flour we're talking about. It keeps working until it's gone through absolutely everything. What starts as something small ends up as something big, ends up as something that works its way through all of what it's in, all of what it is a part of. The kingdom of God is the same way, right? It started small. It started insignificant. But how does it finish? Let's think forward to the end of the book. And what do we know about how the kingdom of God is going to end, about how it's going to finish? Well, it's going to finish as a multitude of people made up of every nation, every ethnic group, every social class from around the globe. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, John's vision of the scene in heaven before the throne of God. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all languages, standing before the throne, and before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. A great multitude that no one could number. Every nation, all tribes, peoples, languages. This is the destiny of the kingdom of God. This is what we're told it's going to finish like. The kingdom of God, we learn from these parables, starts small, but the kingdom of God ends really, really big. All right, third truth that we learn. 
The kingdom of God benefits the world. This one is a little bit more subtle. It's a little easier to miss. But I think it's a direct implication of what we see in these parables. The kingdom of God benefits the world. We're told the mustard seed turns into a tree, and the tree is substantial enough that what happens? Birds come and make nests in its branches. It provides a shelter. It provides a home for them. This imagery contains echoes of the imagery used in the Old Testament by the prophets Ezekiel, by the prophet Daniel, who often pictured kingdoms as trees. And they would picture the people who benefited from them, the subjects of them, the people who lived in those kingdoms, as birds who would shelter in their branches, who would find shade underneath these trees. For you who were around for our study of Daniel last year, think about uh, Nebuchadnezzar when he was pictured in chapter 4 of Daniel as this great tree. And the birds of the air came and sheltered and people took shade underneath of it. It was a common way of picturing kings and kingdoms in the Old Testament prophets. And here we're told birds come and shelter in the mustard tree. It's so big that it provides a home for those around it. And then think of yeast and flour. Intrinsic to using the imagery of yeast and flour is the notion of what are yeast and flour used to make? Bread. When you have yeast and you have flour, you're making bread. And what is bread for? It's for feeding people. It's for nourishing people. Both of the pictures that are painted here by Jesus of the kingdom of God carry with them the idea that the kingdom of God benefits and brings nourishment and brings good to those around it, those who take shelter under it. Now, Jesus' kingdom, as it's growing, benefits the whole world. People from every corner of the earth can come and find shelter in this kingdom, find a nest in this tree, eat of this bread both in ultimate spiritual terms, right? Like that's the prime meaning. We gather here because we've taken shelter in Christ as Savior and Lord and the King who feeds our souls. And so in that sense, the kingdom of God gives shelter to people, but it also benefits the world, gives good things to the world by outside of that in, in a temporal sense, right? As Jesus sends us out to do good in the world, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God to fight against injustice, suffering, and oppression with everything we have here and now, right? Galatians 6, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Right? The kingdom of God benefits especially those who take shelter in it, especially those who are of the household of faith. But we're told to do good to everyone, to benefit everyone. The kingdom benefits the world. Birds come and shelter in the tree. The bread that the yeast works through feeds people, nourishes people. So the kingdom of God starts small. The kingdom of God ends up big. The kingdom of God benefits the world. Fourth and finally, and easiest to miss, I think. At least it was easy for me to miss for a long time. Easy to miss is this. How does the kingdom grow from small and insignificant into big and glorious? Slowly. So slowly, you can't even really notice it. So slowly, you can watch all you want. You'll never see it. All right, it's almost springtime, right? We're getting really antsy to start seeing green on the trees, to feel it getting warmer outside. So I got a project for you. Go plant some grass in your yard this spring. Put the seed down, put some grass food on it, water it up, get a cold drink, pop a lawn chair, sit there and watch it grow. 
it's going to be a fantastically fun afternoon. No, it's going to look like absolutely nothing is happening. But something is happening. How do you know something is happening? Well, come back in two weeks. Come back in two months. Come back in midsummer when you have to get the lawnmower out because now the HOA is going to be on you because your new grass is huge and it's all over the place. Something is happening, but you can't see it in the moment. It's not immediately apparent. In fact, it can be invisible in the moment. Once that mustard seed is put in the ground, it doesn't look like it's doing anything at all. If you come back in a few months, you'll see, hey, there's a young plant there. Something's going on. But if you watch the young plant, you still won't see anything happening to it. You'll think, oh, maybe it's stuck. Maybe this is where it ends. Come back in a few months. Come back in a year. And now you see the tree. See, you'll never see the slightest idea of the growth of the mustard seed in real time. But you come back over a long period of time, and it's dramatic. It goes from small to great. Same with yeast. Anybody ever watched bread dough rise? Fantastic way to spend your Sunday afternoon, right? Now, yeast making bread dough rise is much, 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 much faster than the growth of the mustard seed into the tree, right? You can accomplish that in just a day. But still, if you put it in there and you sit and you watch it, it doesn't look like anything's happening at all. It still is invisible in real time. You have to come back hours later to see, oh, now it's worked all the way through and it's made the whole bread dough rise. And so it is with the kingdom of God. And so it is with the kingdom of God. Is the kingdom of God growing in the world today? Is the kingdom of God growing in the world today? I would wager that some of us in this room, that if we asked people and Christians all over the place, a lot of people would say no. After all, look at the church 10 years ago and look at the church now, especially in our Western cultural context. It doesn't look like a whole heck of a lot is happening. It looks like things are kind of staying the same. It might even look like things are on the decline. But look at the church 2,000 years ago and look at the church now. From those few dozen followers that Jesus sent out, surveys now peg the followers of Jesus around the globe at 2.4 billion people, or roughly one-third the world's population. Now, you might point out, well, we could be kind of skeptical of those numbers. After all, not everyone who says they're a Christian actually is a Christian. So just for the sake of argument, let's cut it in half. It's not 2.4 billion, it's 1.2 billion. I'd say a couple dozen to 1.2 billion is a pretty good growth rate. I'll take those numbers. That looks like something really, really small turning into something really, really big. And that every tribe, tongue, and nation bit we talked about earlier, that's working out pretty well too. Three of the 10 largest Christian populations in the world are in sub-Saharan Africa. Two are in Latin America. One is in Asia. And that's not even accounting for what's going on in China, where the gospel is growing at an exponential rate and is on pace to transform that nation, and is threatening the government of that nation right now. Has them shaking, has them cracking down. It's easy to look at the world and be discouraged about the progress of the gospel, and assume that all this kingdom growth that we see talked about in the Bible, it has to just be about the age to come, right? It has to just be about when Jesus comes back and sets everything to right, because right now it ain't happening. But when you look at the kingdom 
through the lens of these parables, you notice it's happening exactly like Jesus said it would. It starts small. It grows into something big. And it grows in a way that you don't even notice it while it's happening. It's not until you look at that, you look back and you look forward that you see something foundational has changed. I want to read you a quote from Douglas Sean O'Donnell, who is a pastor and teacher in Australia. He said this, Jesus has been remarkably accurate, hasn't he? The Roman Empire no longer exists. It hasn't existed for over 1,500 years. Ah, but the kingdom of heaven... That little mustard seed Jesus planted in Galilee two millennia ago, it has grown into a tree. The biggest, longest living kingdom in history. The Egyptian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Aztec Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Mongol Empire. Christianity has beat them all by persisting for 2,000 years and counting. And look at the branches of this tree. There are branches in North Carolina and South Korea, East Timor and the West Indies. Take a snapshot of every of any given point in time in church history, and it probably looks like not much is going on. But look at the big picture, and the evidence of God's power and his work in the world is staggering. This is the picture we're being painted of the kingdom. Kingdom change is invisible, and yet at the same time, It's dramatic. But there's another truth that we see in verse 34. And that's this, that kingdom wisdom is veiled and yet it's revealing. In verse 34, Jesus, we get, or we get a short remark from Matthew about the practice and purpose of Jesus' teaching in parables, right? Why does Jesus keep talking about parables? Why is almost all of chapter 13 these little stories? Well, we see in verse 34, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. A couple things to note here. One, note that these things, he said nothing to them without a parable. All these things he said in parables. These things refers to the immediate context of what is being told to us in Matthew 13. Right? Obviously, Jesus didn't never say anything at all to the people without a parable. After all, last year we spent months unpacking the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount wasn't parables, it was clear teaching. So what Matthew's saying here is not, Jesus always ever only spoke in parables. No, he's saying, in this time he spent with these crowds that I'm recounting to you in my gospel, he, he didn't say anything without a parable. It was parables all the time. So why? What was the purpose of the parables? Well, if you were here a few weeks ago for Pastor Todd's sermon from verses 10 through 17, you might remember that one of the purposes of the parables was that they veil spiritual truth. Even though it's right there in plain sight through the parables, some people just don't see it. Some people who've got their eyes shut off to God and what he's doing in the world, they ignore it completely. He he used the the reminder of those magic eye tests. Remember the magic eye tests in the books from when you were kids and you you look at the the weird picture and there's another 3D image hidden in there and I always felt like an idiot because I could never see them at all. That's kind of the same thing. We can all look at the thing. It's right there. Some people can see it and some people can't. So the, the parables of Jesus veil spiritual truth in a way. It's hidden in plain sight. But there's more that's going on with the parables. And what Matthew says here is that Jesus also spoke in parables to reveal things. 
a promise that Matthew says was foreshadowed in Old Testament prophecy, right? This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And he quotes from Psalm 78, which Todd read during our scripture reading earlier today. Todd read from the back half of Psalm 78. Uh, Matthew quotes here from Psalm 78, verses 1 and 2. It says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the word of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. What Matthew's saying is that parables reveal deep mysteries from ages past. Right? Parables veil things. If you're looking at it and you really aren't looking, you'll miss completely what's there. But what's there actually reveals mysteries that the Old Testament prophets longed to understand. Parables veil truth to those who have hardened their hearts to it. But to those with ears to hear, they illuminate God's truth and the wonder of God's kingdom. Right, the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables and they thought, this is just ridiculous. This is silly stuff. We don't need this guy. But those people, those farmers, those people who followed Jesus around, they understood the mysteries of the kingdom of God because of what Jesus spoke. In these simple stories, think about this, church. In these simple stories, you are shown things that Abraham never understood. You are shown things that Moses never understood. You are shown things that David never understood, that Isaiah never understood, that Daniel never understood. All these Old Testament heroes who we hold up and we think, man, if only I could have lived then and known and saw what they saw. They didn't understand this, and it's been thrown out right there on the bottom shelf for you to grab and take hold of and understand this is what your God is doing. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 says, Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So think about Isaiah 53, right? By his stripes we are healed. This picture of the suffering servant. It says these prophets were, were straining their brains trying to see when is this going to happen? How is it going to happen? But Peter says it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Jesus, through the parables, has taken the cookies off the top shelf and he set it down in the floor and popped the lid. For you, for me, to understand, here's how my kingdom's gonna work. Here's how it's going to work in the world writ large. Here's how it's going to work in your heart. Parables veil and parables clarify. To the uninterested, it's not that they can't comprehend what's going on. It's not that there's an IQ requirement that you've got to get in order to figure it out. But to the uninterested, they dismiss the significance of them. They think this is silliness. I don't need this. They're silly tales. To those on whom the light of God's spirit has shone, they speak volumes. They change the world. They change our hearts. They change our minds. The uh, pastor I quoted earlier, O'Donnell, he compares them to stained glass windows. Now, we have some stained glass windows in here. They're not a huge feature, and it's not a particularly bright day, so this isn't going to be something we can look at and see immediately. But think of a stained glass window. When you look at a stained glass window from the outside of a building, 
it doesn't really shine, right? It looks kind of drab, because you're seeing it from outside where the light is. It looks drab, it looks colorless, it looks dull. When the sun is shining brightly and you're on the inside of the building and you look at the stained glass window, it's vibrant. It lights up, it casts the whole room in color. O'Donnell says the parables are kind of like that. To the ones who don't get it, it's like standing on the outside of the building and you see the picture there, you see the, the picture in the stained glass windows, but it doesn't look particularly remarkable. It doesn't look particularly beautiful. It doesn't look particularly vibrant. But on the inside, when you look up and you see it, it's stunning. It changes you. It makes you stop and look and wonder. The kind of wisdom that God gives to people in his kingdom is veiled, and yet it's revealing at the same time. It's a glorious gem hidden in plain sight. It's dismissed by the proud, but it's embraced by the humble. Kingdom wisdom is veiled, yet revealing. And so as we look at this little piece of text, as we look at these five uh, verses, now we come to the point where we say, so what? Okay, this is nice. It's kind of cool information. It would be easy to see this as just interesting, maybe even fascinating information, but assume it's just information, that it isn't given to change us. After all, there's no commands here, right? I don't have one thou shalt to give you or thou shalt not to give you today. There's no commands. There's no instruction. There's no exhortation. So what do we do with this? Because it's just information, but it's information that changes everything. It should reshape your mind. It should reshape your heart. It should reshape your attitudes. It should reshape your affections. It should reshape your outlook. How so? I'm glad you asked. Let's take the mustard seed and the leaven. We've seen what implications they have for the kingdom of God writ large, right? We talked about looking through history at 2,000 years ago to today and seeing how it's been slowly and constantly at work in the world. But have you stopped and thought about the implications that might have for the kingdom of God as it's being constructed in your own heart? As God's transforming you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian? Sometimes you might look at yourself and you might conclude that not much is happening in your life spiritually. Sometimes you might think, I'm just not growing like I want to. Sometimes you might think, I'm stuck. I'm stagnant. I have all these things I want to be for Jesus, but I'm just staying now. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not growing. And it can be easy to give into despair and throw in the towel and think, what's the point? This is a dead-end street. I'm never going to change. I'm never going to be the person that I want to be. I'm never going to get over these things that I want to get out of my life. And I'm never going to be the kind of person that God wants me to be. How have you grown in Christ in the last day? You might think, not much. I got nothing. But you're looking at it wrong. How have you grown in the last year? In the last 10 in the last 20. Trace your journey in Christ from its earliest day until today, and you'll see growth. You should see something at that point as we back out and notice you're seeing the glacier slide down the mountain. You're seeing the mustard seed grow into a tree. You're seeing the leaven work its way through the yeast. When you zoom out, you can trace the lines more easily. 
You can see evidences of God's grace at work in your heart, molding you, shaping you, changing you. And you might think nothing is happening. And even the people around you who sit there and see you day after day after day after day might think you look the same as you did a week ago, a month ago. But when we back out and we look at what God started in your heart on that day when you trusted in Christ and where you're at today, you can start to trace the lines. You can see that that you're not the person that you used to be. And the changes might not have gone as far as you want them to go yet. You might feel like you still have so much that needs to happen, but you can see and understand God is at work. And he's working in your life exactly the way he said he would. Something small to something big, and it's slow and even invisible sometimes along the way. And that should give you hope, right? Because just as the leaven and the yeast has been at work in your life so far, it's going to finish the rest of the work. If you put a little yeast into some flour, even three measures of flour, and you, get, you go away and you come back for a while and it's, it's leavened and started that process, but it's not really there yet, are you going to think, well, I guess that's all it's going to do. We're done here. Throw it in the trash. If you go and you, you plant the mustard seed, and you come back three months later, and it's this little tiny plant. And you're like, wow, that's good, but it doesn't look like anything more is happening, so let's rip it up and throw it away. No, the, the growth that's happened so far is evidence that there is a process still ongoing. And just as the yeast started to work its way through the flower, it's going to finish to work its way through the flower. That's a promise of God. Philippians 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There is a finish line, the day of Christ, when he returns. And he who began a good work in you is still at work, and he's not done yet. He will finish the job. 19th century British preacher Charles Spurgeon said, we know not to what our own inner life will come. Right? We don't know what will happen with it. It has an expanding power within it. And it will burst every bond, and it will grow to a thing which will cast shadow, yield fruit, and lend shelter. God will do his work. If you feel discouraged, if you feel like the plant's grown a little bit, it ain't going any farther, easier to just rip it up and move on, don't. It would be as silly as watching that young mustard plant in your garden and because you watched it for five minutes and it didn't go anywhere, you conclude we're done here. Don't make that mistake. Have hope that God is at work and press in and press forward into the things that he's put in your life to help you to grow knowing that you will, knowing that his spirit is still at work. Do you struggle with discouragement and despair about the state of the world? Discouragement, maybe, that's fine, but despair, you really shouldn't. You should not have despair when you look at the world around you. Now, that doesn't mean you don't care about the things that are wrong in the world, because there's a lot wrong in the world. It's very easy to identify. And in some cases, it has deep and painful consequences. So it doesn't mean we don't care about the things that are wrong in the world. It doesn't mean we don't fight against the things that are wrong with the world. But it does mean that we should have confidence that God is at work and he's doing exactly what he said he would do in exactly the way he said he would do it. We should be gospel optimists. We should be gospel optimists because of this text 
and because of others like it, in my approach to end times prophecy, I'm what people call a post-millennialist, okay? We're a small but happy tribe. I believe that kingdom growth is going to continue to build and to build all the way to Jesus' return. This is going to keep happening. Now, evil's going to build too. I'm not looking for some utopian paradise before Christ comes back. I'm not looking for some cheap imitation set up by man of the kingdom of God on earth. But I do believe that of the increase of Jesus' government and of peace, there will be no end. It's going to keep building. This gospel work is going to keep happening. Why do I bring that up? I don't bring that up to say that you need to be a post-millennialist too. Okay, that's not the point here. If you look at Pastor Dave, Pastor Todd, myself, we all have different ways of interpreting those end times texts, and we're still friends, and everything's fine. Like, I'm, gonna say, I'm not going to say you, shouldn't, you should be a post-millennialist. Well, maybe I think you should, because I think it's right. So if I think it's right, you probably should. But I'm not going to say it's clear and it's settled, right? There's lots of different ways to interpret what's going to happen at the end. So my point here is not to say something's wrong with you if you're not a post-millennialist like me. But I am going to say... If you're not an optimist about the gospel, something's wrong. Because the only way that you can look at the world and despair about where things are going is if you're not holding on to the promises that Jesus has given us. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, right? On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's Jesus' direct quote. And gates are a defensive weapon. So it's not as if there's like two armies and he's saying the gates of hell are not going to prevail. Like he's not going to gain any ground. We're just going to be locked in the struggle until Jesus comes back. Gates are defensive weapons. What he's saying is hell ain't going to be able to hold back the gospel. It's done. The gospel will do its work. That's a promise straight from Jesus. Take it to the bank and it should put hope in your heart. These parables are just information, but they're information that should change everything. Attitude, outlook, optimism, and how we invest our lives in response. If God's truth, God's wisdom is hidden in plain sight, right? If it's hidden in plain sight in these parables, are you looking for it? When you look at your Bible, which side of the stained glass window do you see? Do you see it from the outside, drab, washed out, colorless? Or do you see the same window, but from the inside, shining with brilliance, with beauty, with light to illuminate everything around you? Do you see the power of God and the wisdom of God? How do you know? Well, you'll know by how you're approaching it. If it's just drab and lifeless and colorless, you're not going to feel much hunger to get into it. But once you see something brilliant and beautiful in the pages of God's word, you're not going to be able to stay out. You're going to want more. You're going to want to see a little more. You're going to want to understand a little more. And as you dig in and you continue to allow it to wash over you, to mold you, to shape you, to change you, you might not see a difference in your life by next Tuesday or the Tuesday after that. But five years from now, I guarantee you'll look like a different person by the grace of God. The kingdom of God starts small. The kingdom of God ends big. It gives shelter and goodness to the world. And how does it get from small to big? So small it's invisible from day to day. 
And God's work in your heart might feel invisible right now, but take hope. He is not finished. He's not done. And one day, the tree that was planted in your life will bloom and blossom by his grace. So keep watering it. Keep feeding it. Don't get discouraged at your brown backyard and think it's dead and it's hopeless. No, keep doing the things God has called you to do, to feed, to water, to pursue growth, to fight for holiness. It's not in vain. That's why these five verses matter. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown larger than all the plants, when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and it becomes a tree. Jesus tells us that because there's going to be days where we desperately need to remember it and to hold on to the hope that the tree's going to make it, that the flower is going to get leavened, that he who began a good work in you will finish it, will bring it to completion, will, not maybe will, will at the day of Christ Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you've never given a moment's thought to any of this, but suddenly you're seeing something in Jesus' words that you've never seen before. Let's talk. Let's talk exactly about what he's saying, about why it's amazing, and what it looks like to follow this Jesus, the one who is reshaping the world moment by moment, right before our very eyes. Let's pray.